There are hundreds of citizens from the United Kingdom fighting with ISIS in Syria and Iraq. Muslims, rise up! Maybe in part due to this man, Anjum Chowdhury. Do you believe that there will be more attacks in the West? Yes, I believe it's inevitable. If you believe that, would you ever use your role as a British citizen and as a Muslim to actively dissuade people from launching attacks here in the UK, in the US, in the West? You know, I'm not in the game of condemnation or condoning. You know, just, it's as, really um, just a yes or no question. Well, I don't want to answer you uh, with a yes or no answer. We released between 30 and 39,000 tons of ash into the river. Wow. We moved immediately to repair the pipe and also began cleaning the river. That's the CEO of the biggest utility company in the country, Duke Energy, talking about a huge spill of coal ash into the Dan River. These canyons and ridges are what was left after a drainage pipe collapsed and a storage basin emptied. Now Duke's problem is what to do with 100 million tons of old coal ash stored at sites all over North Carolina. We're almost there. We're almost there. Meet Chaser. She may be the smartest dog in the world. Chicken, chicken. Where's chicken? Yes, good girl, good girl. Researchers say she has a vocabulary of more than a thousand words and knows the difference between nouns and verbs. What is science learning from man's best friend? That's good. You'll be surprised. When dogs and humans make eye contact, that actually releases what's known as the love hormone, oxytocin. Thank you very much. When dogs are looking at you, they're essentially hugging you with their eyes. I'm Steve Croft. I'm Leslie Stahl. I'm Morley Safer. I'm Anderson Cooper. I'm Bill Whitaker. I'm Scott Pelley. Those stories tonight on 60 Minutes. These days, you can get practically everything on demand, like this podcast. Listen whenever you want, when it's convenient for you. So why are you still going to the post office and dealing with their limited hours when you can get postage on demand with Stamps.com? Anything you can do at the post office, you can do right from your desk with Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package using your own computer and printer. And unlike the post office, Stamps.com never closes, so you can get postage whenever you need it, 24-7. Plus, you'll even get special postage discounts with Stamps.com you can't get at the post office. Right now, use the promo code 60MINUTES for this special offer. A no-risk trial, plus a $110 bonus offer that includes a digital scale and up to $55 free postage. Don't wait. Go to Stamps.com. And before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in 60MINUTES. That's Stamps.com, and be sure to enter the promo code 60MINUTES. Tonight, CBS News correspondent Clarissa Ward on assignment for 60 Minutes. One of the most shocking things about the rise of ISIS in Iraq and Syria has been the thousands of Westerners who have given up everything to travel to a bloody battlefield far from home and live under strict Islamic Sharia law. But to understand the mentality of these jihadis, you don't need to travel to the Middle East. Across the West, ISIS has a committed support base that is actively recruiting young Muslims. Back in October, we sought out a man at the heart of that movement, a British preacher who sees no border between the streets of London and the front lines of the Middle East. 
Talking to him and his followers gave us a window into a world you may find disturbing and difficult to understand. There are at least 500 UK citizens fighting in Syria and Iraq, and every week, according to British police, another five recruits join the fight. British jihadis have been on the front lines with ISIS from the very beginning. In the group's recent videos showing the executions of Western hostages, the masked man holding the knife speaks with a London accent. We'll only drag you and your people into another bloody and unwinnable war. The spike in Western fighters may be in part due to this man, Anjum Chowdhury. A British-born lawyer turned Islamic preacher who lives in London and has for years been asserting his democratic right to call for an end to democracy. Down, down democracy! Down, down democracy! I believe that Islam is superior and uh, will not be surpassed, so I believe that the law of God is much superior to man-made law. So in that sense, you believe that Islam and democracy are mutually exclusive, that they can't exist side by side. Allah is the only one to legislate. So obviously in that sense it's completely uh, diametrically opposed. You cannot have man legislating and playing God in parliament and at the same time believe that Allah is the only legislator. You have the freedom to come here today, you have the freedom to speak on television, to worship whichever God you please, but you're advocating a system that essentially would take away all of those freedoms. Allah created my tongue to speak. I don't have freedom to come here because Allah created my feet to walk. So I walk and I speak and I look and I hear according to what God says. Chowdhury has been accused of inspiring hundreds of Muslims from across the West to join ISIS. You are the best if you are believers. We went to a meeting he held in an East London basement. On the wall was a large picture of Buckingham Palace turned into a mosque. He described the newly formed Islamic State in Iraq and Syria as a kind of utopia. Talking about jihad, he sounded at times like a coach, giving a pep talk before the big game. When the heavens are with you, when the earth is with you, when the sea is with you, when the wind is with you, who's going to defeat you after that? Nobody. Chowdhury has fronted a series of organizations that have been banned by the British government under the country's anti-terror laws, but he denies that he actively recruits fighters. You know, the, uh, the messenger Muhammad, he said, fight them with your wealth, with your body, with your tongue. So I'm engaged here, if you like, in a verbal jihad. But what you're actually doing, essentially, is inspiring young men to go and fight in these countries while you stay here and enjoy no, a comfortable I mean, is, life is, in the United is, this, Kingdom. This is, this is a kind of uh, the, the rhetoric that the Western media come out with. But, I mean, there are no examples of anyone, in fact, who is in any of the battlefronts who actually say, well, actually, Mr. Chowdhury asked me to come here, or he bought my ticket. You know, if it were they the case... They wouldn't say that you the bought case, their ticket, well, no, but they might the case, say that you inspired well, I mean, them with you know, your these, message. There was a report out recently which said that uh, I, I inspired 500 people, in fact, to carry out operations here and abroad. And uh, if that were really the case, don't you think that I'd be arrested and uh, I'll be in prison. So if a young man, one of your students, comes to you and says, should I go and fight in Syria or Iraq, what would you tell them? Well, they haven't come to me, and if they come to me, I'll think about a suitable response. But what, I, I'm what would engaged. you tell them? I don't do with it's hypotheticals. a hypothetical question. I don't question. deal with hypotheticals. I deal with reality. You know, I mean, there are many things that could happen hypothetically. Young men Why come to me... Why won't you answer the question? It really should be an I, easy I, question. I like to deal with reality. If that happens, you can have another interview with me, and I'll deal with it. But one week after our interview, Chowdhury was arrested, quote, on suspicion of being a member of a prescribed or banned organization and encouraging terrorism. 
Also rounded up in the raids was one of his young followers, Abu Ramesa. We want Islam. We want Islam to dominate the world. UK, France... Talking to Ramesa, you come face to face with a version of Islam that wipes out every other aspect of a person's identity. He is a convert from Hinduism, but his new beliefs bar even the most basic human feelings towards his mother and other family members who didn't convert. I don't love them um, as non-Muslims, but I, I desire for them to become Muslim and embrace Islam. But you love her as your mother. She's my mother and she has rights over me, so I have to take care of her, I have to look after her, I have to make sure that you know, she's protected and secure, so I, I fulfil my obligations like that. But do you feel love for her? Um, it's not allowed for me to love non-Muslims, so that's something that is a matter of faith. So do you feel that you are British? I identify myself as Muslim. Uh, if, I, if I was born in a, in a stable, you know, I'm not going to be a horse. If I was born in Nazi Germany, I'm not going to be a Nazi. I mean, this is just an island I was born in. Ramesa and Chowdhury both live in East London, which is home to one of the largest Muslim populations in the UK. In one part of town, Ramesa and his associates have set up so-called Sharia patrols to go out and discourage behavior that they deem un-Islamic. On this night, they stopped to talk to a couple of non-Muslim men who were in a park drinking beer, which is forbidden under Islam. So we're just reminding, anyway, we're reminding the community about staying safe. And in this area, there's a lot of gambling that goes on, a lot of alcohol drinking, and it leads to a lot of problems. So we advise you and we advise anyone you see to stay away from these things. Get the prostitutes off our streets! But the patrols are not always so friendly. Online clips give a very different picture. A woman in a short skirt is abused. Vigilante. We don't care if you're appalled at all. Muslim it's it's Great Britain. This we don't care. It's not so Great Britain. A man the patrol thinks is gay is insulted. Get out of here quicker then. You're dirty, mate. You're gay, mate. Get out of here, mate. In the night time, it turns into a very ugly place like many other Walking through London with Ramesa, you experience an alternate reality where there is no compromise and all conversations are one-sided. Ultimately, I want to see every single woman in this country covered from head to toe. I want to see the hand of the thief cut. I want to see adultery stoned to death. I want to see Sharia law in Europe, and I want to see it in America as well. I believe our patrols are a means to an end. The only thing I would say is that in America and in the United Kingdom, we have a system, democracy... A that, backwards one. But it's a, a system one. that allows the people to choose what they want and allows people freedom. So why can't I choose Sharia? When in Rome, overthrow Caesar, implement the Sharia. In your home, you can do whatever you want. But what about in the public? Why can't I tell you to cover up? Am I free to say that? Because it would be outrageous. Of so where's my freedom? Not. Where's my freedom? You can say it to me, but Okay, you... so cover up. Where the hijab? That's absurd. The thought of Chowdhury's supporters taking the law into their own hands is deeply frightening to most British people. This is a group that believes the West is at war with Islam and that the invasions of Iraq and Afghanistan justify any kind of violence in response. The most shocking example of that logic was the gruesome and very public murder of British soldier Lee Rigby on a London street in 2013. We have killed this man today is because Muslims are dying daily by British soldiers. 
On that day, the man wielding the knife was a known associate of Chowdhury. Chowdhury has refused to condemn Rigby's murder, nor will he criticize ISIS for the beheading of American journalist James Foley and other Western hostages. You know, I don't know the details about James Foley. I know the details. Let me educate you because well, he was well, a friend of mine. I don't believe you, I'm afraid. Sorry, I don't believe you. You don't the believe fact, me that James Foley believe, was a journalist. No, no, I don't believe any Western journalist, quite frankly. I believe your lies until proven otherwise. But let me tell you something. The perspective of the Muslims of journalists, whether that be James Foley and others, is that they are the propaganda for the Western regime. Have you no, formed but, but, an opinion for yourself? I formed my opinion on the basis of what the Muslims say, not on the basis of what you say. I'm sensing a double standard here, because essentially you're very quick to condemn acts of violence mm -hmm. by the West, but you refuse to condemn mm -hmm. any act of violence mm -hmm. by your fellow Muslims. No, I believe that the, there's a difference between the oppressor and oppressed. Britain's authorities have struggled with how to handle extremists like Chowdhury and his followers. He has been arrested multiple times, but never convicted of anything more than staging an illegal demonstration. And now the police face a new challenge that is nearly impossible to manage. The spread of Islamic extremism through slickly produced online propaganda films from real fighters in real battlefields. We will chop up the heads of the Americans, chop up the heads of the French, chop up the heads of whoever you may bring. Those videos have proven wildly attractive to thousands of young people who feel alienated from the Western societies they live in. For them, jihad offers the promise of power and glory. Sir Peter Fahi is in charge of a government program called Prevent, set up to combat the radicalization of British Muslims. I think the big concern about the current situation is just a huge amount of material which is available on, on social media uh, and the various publications and the various videos that I think a lot of us are, are struggling to come to terms with and, and get a good picture of. So in a sense, it's less about preachers radicalizing young men and it's more young fighters radicalizing other young fighters from the battlefield mm -hmm. using mm -hmm. social media mm -hmm. as their recruitment platform. I think you're absolutely right. That is my concern, is that what has changed again over recent months is that you have got local people identifiable as real people. You've got you know, a person who's identifiably British um, who's gone out there um, and is absolutely using social media to be able to communicate directly into your son or daughter's bedroom uh, and to encourage them to come out. And I think that is extremely worrying. Um, uh, as a new development. As I say, I think a lot of families and a lot of parents, uh, including obviously Muslim parents, are very concerned about that. Bedroom jihad, they're calling it. It's almost that personal contact, um, which is the worrying aspect. Um, but, you know, we, we need to be aware of all different forms of, of brainwashing and radicalization. If their parents can't stop it, what can you do to stop it? Well, all we can do is raise awareness. But you're absolutely right, and we constantly agonise about whether this is a job for the police or not. Britain's mainstream Muslim leaders are speaking out against ISIS and have discouraged young men in their communities from joining the fight. But the ongoing US-led military campaign in Syria and Iraq has stoked anger and raised fears of terrorist retaliation attacks in the West. Do you believe that there will be more attacks in the West? Yes, I believe it's inevitable. If you believe that, would you ever use your role as a British citizen and as a Muslim to actively dissuade people 
from launching attacks here in the UK, in the US, in the West? Well, I think we need to deal with the root causes. I think it's, uh, it's really absurd to say, well, why shouldn't people react? The fact is, if we don't deal with the root cause, which is the occupation of Muslim land, which is the torture of Muslims, which is the foreign policy of governments like Britain and America, then you will never be able to stop people. So just so I understand, you will continue to refuse to condemn mm -hmm. acts of terror? Well, as I say, you know, I'm not in the game of condemnation or condoning. You know, just, it's really as, um, just a yes or no question. Well, I don't want to answer you uh, with a yes or no answer. It's not yet known whether Chowdhury will ever have to give straight answers in a courtroom. His bail has been extended through August, but so far no charges have been filed. In the weeks after our story first aired, we found out that Abu Ramesa, the young convert from Hinduism, skipped bail and fled the UK for Syria. He is now living with his wife and children in ISIS territory. Provide security to your home or business with Alarm Grid, the do-it-yourself home security company. We offer the same high-quality name brand equipment that professional installers put into homes. Installation is easy with free support and online resources. We'll even monitor an existing alarm system that you want to switch over. Alarm Grid has no contracts and no gimmicks. And with prices starting at just $10 a month and no activation fee, it's never been more affordable. Learn more at alarmgrid.com slash 60 today. That's Alarm grid.com slash six zero every year coal burning power plants generate not only electricity but a staggering amount of leftover coal ash that contains heavy metals unhealthy to humans yet due in part to intense industry lobbying oversight over disposal has been largely left in the hands of state officials and employees who are often beholden to the powerful local utility companies for decades, coal ash was just dumped into giant pits dug by rivers and lakes where toxins could leach into nearby water and soil. There are over 1,000 ash pits or ponds dotting the nation, many of them old, poorly monitored, all but forgotten. But as we first reported back in December, every few years we're reminded that this can lead to disaster like the coal ash spill in February last year into North Carolina's Dan River at a power plant owned by Duke Energy, the biggest utility company in the country. The spill at Dan River happened when a drainage pipe that ran underneath an ash basin and dam collapsed, sucking out six decades of waste and spewing gunk directly into the river. It was an accident. It didn't work the way it should have worked. It did not meet our standards or expectations. Duke Energy CEO Lynn Good, then only seven months on the job, had a crisis on her hands. How many tons of ash do you know went into the river? Yes, we released between 30 and 39,000 tons of ash into the river. Wow. We moved immediately to repair the pipe and also began cleaning the river. And we've used this as an opportunity at Duke to raise our standards even higher of all of our basins to ensure and confirm that they were operating safely. Once the water spilled out of the basin, this is what was exposed. Canyons and ridges of industrial waste the size of 20 football fields, buried right by the river where people fish and swim and get their drinking water. But the accident at Dan River wasn't the first time a coal ash pond collapsed. 
It happened to another company six years ago in Kingston, Tennessee. That spill was more than 100 times larger, smothering homes in toxic muck and choking up the river. After Kingston in 2008, did Duke raise its vigilance? Yes, there were inspections that went on uh, throughout the industry, and certainly at Duke, where all of the basins were reviewed. Actually, inspections had been going on for years, including this one in 1986 that Duke itself paid for. It recommended quantitative monitoring of the very pipe that collapsed, saying it was expected to have less longevity. So that first report urging Duke to watch that pipe was 30 years ago, but there were others, 1996, 2001, 2006, advising you to keep watching that pipe over and over. 2009, the EPA warned about the pipe. How could you neglect those? The results of those inspections indicated that we should monitor, and we were monitoring. And what we were looking for is that the pipe would leak before it failed. But it didn't fail in that way. It failed without leaking. I don't think Duke even knew what was underneath some of their dams and knew the structural issues. The spill infuriated Pat McCrory, the pro-business Republican governor of North Carolina. He knows Duke well, having worked there for 29 years. How would you describe or rate Duke's record on dealing with coal ash disposal? Well, actually, there has been no record regarding coal ash disposal. They Um, haven't done anything? Very little, very little. I, I, I think the record's been quite poor because, frankly, it's been out of sight, out of mind. Leslie, we have been generating electricity in this country from coal for decades. And that means coal ash. And that ash that has been produced has been stored in accordance with industry standards and practices for decades. We're at a period when the electric system, and certainly Duke's system, is modernizing. We're adding natural gas, we're adding renewables, and we're closing some coal plants. Fact is, Duke closed the Dan River plant in 2012, and that perplexed the governor. When I heard about the Dan River plant having a coal ash spill, my first reaction was, wait a minute. That plant's been closed for years. Why are we having a spill at a plant that's not even open? That's because when they closed the plant, Duke just left the ash pond where it was. In an unprecedented program, Duke has closed half their coal ash plants in North Carolina in the last three years, blowing up one after another after another as the company switches to natural gas. In all cases, they just left the coal ash ponds and basins behind. This is no way to store industrial waste in large quantities in such a primitive way. Frank Holloman, an attorney at the Southern Environmental Law Center, says it makes no sense to store coal ash that usually contains toxins like arsenic, mercury, thallium, and cadmium in basins right next to waterways. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out if you dig an earthen, unlined hole in the earth next to a river uh, that, and you put in it a substance that has toxic substances, that is going to leak into the groundwater. That's not, it doesn't take a genius to figure that out. Your organization, you have been suing Duke Energy. That's correct. Well, what 
we have hoped is that we could convince Duke, get the coal ash out of these unlined pits, move it to safe line, dry storage, away from the waterway. That's what Duke is already doing with most of its newly generated ash, trucking it to dry, lined landfills away from waterways or sending it off for reuse as building material. But the company's big problem is what to do with the 100 million tons of old coal ash it's accumulated in their 32 ponds in North Carolina. Some, like this one, up against people's backyards where children play. Leslie, we're committed to closing all of the sites. When you say close, what do you mean by close? So there are various methods um, that can be used to close. Uh, certainly excavating them to align landfill is one of the methods. That method would cost up to $8 billion. But Duke is considering two other options, lining the bottom and top of the ponds but leaving the ash there, which would cost somewhat less, or least pricey at $2 billion, cap in place, which means just covering the top of the pond. With no lining on the bottom. And typically, cap-in-place is not lined on the bottom, but we would not move forward uh, with a cap-in-place unless we had a certainty that the water is safe. And so that's where the science comes in. That's where the study needs to be completed so that we develop smart solutions. That's called cap-in-place. Cap-in-place. Right. Now, would that satisfy your organization? No, it would not. An unlined pit next to a river, a lake, or a drinking water reservoir, it stays wet. Only if you have a lining in it do you separate this industrial waste from the water table and the groundwater. So cap in place is only pollute in place. Well, obviously I'm not a scientist, but shouldn't you just say, okay, we're going to line them all? I'd love to tell you there's a simple solution to this. I'd love to tell you that ash ash has been stored for decades, can be solved quickly. We, We like quick answers. We like to pull our cell phone up and do research and get answers right away. But in order to do this right, we do need to do the study. We need to understand what is the groundwater? Where is the groundwater? We need to understand the stability of the basin. We need to understand the soil type. I cannot immediately move 100 million tons of ash. It's not a, um, a response that makes any sense, doesn't make common sense. As much as I'd love to tell you, there's a simple solution. It's one that requires study, and it's one that requires time to complete. But environmentalists say studying is code for stalling, because this problem isn't new. Duke has been conducting tests around their ash ponds for decades. And five years ago, when state regulators demanded to see the data, they found something alarming. The coal ash ponds in all of Duke's 14 plants were either leaking toxic chemicals into rivers and streams or contaminating the groundwater. Some of the readings that we have found are for uh, elements like iron and manganese, which are naturally occurring. But nine of your plants have been found to have groundwater violations for contaminants including lead, sulfate, boron, chromium, thallium, selenium, and arsenic. So we have had exceedances. And when I said iron and manganese, Leslie, I was talking about the majority of them. We have had instances of other uh, readings as well. Well, I'm citing your own monitoring statistics, which do say that there have been hazardous chemicals that have entered the groundwater or surface water 
at all 14 plants by your own admission. And what we have uh, recommended and we'll be moving forward with and the state has recommended is further assessments so that appropriate right. steps can be taken. So, <laughs> Leslie, I think, assessments. I, know, I think it's important to understand this. But and you, I, even you have to throw your head back and say further assessments. But these results go back years. And to say we need to study more, you know, is a very frustrating thing to have to hear. And I'm not even a citizen of North Carolina. We have very openly and transparently disclosed these results to work with the regulators to determine whether it really represents a risk. Does Duke's coal ash today pose any health risk at all? I believe our system is operating safely. But local environmentalists showed us leaks from several of Duke's ash ponds, like this one at Cape Fear. The stream is like this, uh, leaking coal ash into the river 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. After we asked state officials about this particular leak, lab tests were done showing notably elevated concentrations of sulfate, aluminum, iron, manganese, boron, and strontium. The state says the leak doesn't impact the overall health of the river, but is illegal, a violation of the Clean Water Act. Yet environmentalists like Frank Holloman say that over the years, the state never forced Duke to clean up its ash ponds under both Democratic and Republican administrations. How powerful is Duke Energy in the state of North Carolina? It's the most powerful entity in the state of North Carolina. It spends millions of dollars on political contributions, and it has traditionally had a very close relationship with the state regulators. Just last year, Governor McCrory cut the budget and staff of the specific department that inspects the ash ponds. The state legislature did pass a law in August requiring Duke to clean up its plants, but only after the company had already volunteered to do that. Earlier, when Holloman tried to sue Duke, he was thwarted by the state, which stepped in and negotiated a settlement that allowed Duke, you guessed it, more time to study and imposed only a paltry fine. Tell everybody how much the fine was. I don't have that list, but again... It was $99,111, which correct. does not sound like a big fine. It wasn't a big fine. All this has made federal prosecutors suspicious. They impaneled a grand jury to investigate whether Duke or the regulators has done anything illegal to get the state to go easy on the company. Virtually... Every newspaper in the state of North Carolina uh, came out with editorials claiming that Duke was lax and lawless when it came to the environment and acted like a bully with state regulators. I recognize that. I disagree with that characterization. Uh, there's been, it's been a challenging time, a difficult time, lots of voices weighing in, certainly lots of scrutiny and criticism. But you must take this to heart if there's so much of it. You know, of course we do. We take this very seriously. And we're using this as an opportunity to raise our standards even higher, to ensure that our operations are safe. It's our highest priority at Duke. Since our story aired, disposal of coal ash is now federally regulated. And just last month, Duke Energy pleaded guilty to four criminal violations of the Clean Water Act for the spill at Dan River and five additional violations for polluting other North Carolina rivers with coal ash for years. The company issued a public apology and was fined $102 million. 
Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Human beings have lived with dogs for thousands of years. You'd think that after all that time, we'd have discovered all there is to know about them. But as we first reported last fall, it turns out that until recently, scientists didn't pay much attention to dogs. Dolphins have been studied for decades, apes and chimps as well. But dogs, with whom we share our lives, were never thought to be worthy of serious study. As a result, we know very little about what actually goes on inside dogs' brains. Do they really love us, or are dogs just licking us so they can get fed? How much of our language can they understand? Before you answer, we want you to meet Chaser, who's been called the smartest dog in the world. Yeah, we're going to Wofford. Hoop! Good girl, good girl, good girl. 86-year-old retired psychology professor John Pilly and his border colleague Chaser are inseparable. We're almost there. We're almost there. Can you speak? Speak. Speak. Good girl, good girl. Do you view Chaser as a family pet, as a friend? How do you see Chaser? She's our child. She's, she's your child? She's our child, a member of the family. Yeah, yes. She comes first. Many people think of their dogs as children, but John Pilly has been teaching her like a child as well. By signing names to toys, okay, Chase. Pilly has been helping Chaser learn words and simple sentences. Take KG. He's been teaching her up to five hours a day. Five days a week for the past nine years. My best metaphor is this is a two-year-old toddler. That's how you think about your dog, a two-year-old toddler. Yeah, she has the capabilities of a two-year-old chicken, chicken, chicken. Where's chicken? He's not kidding. Yes, good girl. Most two-year-old toddlers in tub. know about 300 words. Figure eight, figure eight. Good girl, that's figure eight. Chaser's vocabulary good girl. Good girl. is good girl. three times that. To tub. She's learned the names of more than a thousand toys. And all of those toys add up. Wheel, yes, bring it out. To show us Chaser's collection, Pilly brought us to his back porch. So these are all the toys in here? Yes. Got a <laughs> chicken in here. Okay. Is it right if I dump them out? Please do. Please okay. do. Okay. There are 800 cloth animals, 116 different balls, and more than 100 plastic toys. 1,022 toys in all, each with a unique name. So Chaser could recognize the names of every one of these toys. That's true. That's true. To prove it, Pilly cataloged the toys and then, over the course of three years, gave Chaser hundreds of tests like this. Chaser, find circle, find circle. In every test, Chaser correctly identified 95% or more of the toys. Find circle, Chase. Yeah. The results were published in a peer-reviewed scientific journal, and a star was born. How are you? Good to see you. I'm so glad to see you. Chaser even landed a book deal. You too. But John Pilly didn't stop with the names of toys. Nose KG, nose KG, knows it, knows it. Good girl. He's taught Chaser that nouns and verbs have different meanings point, point, point. and can be combined yeah. in a variety of ways. Take wheel. Do it, go, do it. Okay, out, out. Chase, take KG. Do it, good, good girl, good girl. So she's actually understanding the difference between take, paw, putting her paw on something, and putting her nose on something. Right, and that's what we're demonstrating. All this learning has been possible, Pilly says, because of a breakthrough Chaser had when she was just a puppy. At a certain point, she realized that objects have names. Right. It was an insight. It came to her. How could you tell that she'd suddenly had that insight? 
Well, it was in the fifth month, and she'd learned about 40 names. And the time necessary to work with her kept getting shorter and shorter. She was starting to learn words faster and faster? Yes. It's the closest thing in animals we've seen to being like what young children do as they're learning words. Brian Hare, an evolutionary anthropologist at Duke University, believes Chaser is the most important dog in the history of modern scientific research. This is very serious science. We're not talking about stupid pet tricks where people have spent, you know, hours trying to just, you know, train a dog to do the same thing over and over. What's neat about what Chaser's doing is Chaser is learning tons, literally thousands of new things by using the same ability that kids use when they learn lots of words. He's talking about what researchers call social inference, a capability humans, like Hare's son Luke, acquire around age one. To demonstrate the concept, Hare hides a ball under one of these two cups. Hey, looky guy, where is it? Can you get it? Can you get the ball? Luke doesn't know which cup the ball is under. Can you get it? But when his father points, he makes an inference. Hey, nice job. You got it. So what does that show you? So when kids his age start understanding pointing, it's right when um, the foundations of what lead to language and culture start to develop. Hey. It might look simple, but when Hare tried the same test with bonobos, great apes he studied for more than a decade, look what happened. Bonobos, our closest genetic relatives, can't do it. You chose the wrong one. But Hare discovered dogs can. You ready? All right, I'm going to hide in one of these two places. This two-year-old Labrador named Sisu has no trouble understanding the meaning of pointing. Now, she doesn't know for sure which place you put That's it. right. There's no way she could know, and I'm just going to tell her where it is. Okay, Sisu. So that's really hard for a lot of animals, and uh -huh. that's what's really special about dogs is they're really similar to even human toddlers. That's a level of thinking that people didn't really think dogs could do. Right. I mean, there was no evidence until the last decade that dogs were capable of inferential reasoning. Absolutely not. So that's what's new. That's what's shocking is that of all the species, it's dogs that are showing a couple of abilities that are really important uh, that allow humans to develop culture and language. It's not surprising that dogs share characteristics with humans. After all, we've evolved alongside each other for more than 15,000 years. There are now some 80 million dogs in this country, more dogs than children. But for all the playing and petting, the companionship, we still know very little about their brains. Dr. Greg Burns, a physician and neuroscientist at Emory University, has studied the human brain for more than two decades. But three years ago, questions he had about his own dog inspired him to start looking at the canine brain. It started out with the desire to know, really, what does my dog think of me? I love my dog, but do they reciprocate in any way? When they hear you come home, you know, they start jumping around. Is it just because they expect you to feed them? Is this just a scam by the dogs? <laughs> Are dogs just big scammers? Yeah. To try and answer that question, Dr. Burns is doing something scientists have had a difficult time with. He's conducting brain scans on dogs while they're awake and unsedated. Inside the fMRI machine, they're trained to stay completely still. What's around Tigger's head here? The scanner makes a lot of noise. It's quite loud, and because dogs' hearing is more sensitive than ours, we have to protect their hearing just like ours. So we, we put earplugs and earmuffs and just wrap it all to just keep it in place. Okay, now we can go up. Tigger certainly knows the drill. That's good. Once in the machine, he lies down and doesn't move. 
These scans are giving Dr. Burns the first glimpse at how a dog's brain actually works. So these are slices of, of Tigger's brain that you're seeing? Yeah, exactly. So we're slicing from top to bottom. We analyze them later to see which parts increase in response to the different signals. Mm. While in the scanner, the dogs smell cotton swabs with different scents. First, the underarm sweat of a complete stranger. Next, the sweat of their owner. As Dr. Burns expected, when the dogs sniff the swabs, the part of their brain associated with smell, an area right behind the nose, activated. It didn't matter what the scent was. But it was when the dogs got a whiff of their owner's sweat that another area of the brain was stimulated, the caudate nucleus, or reward center. Dr. Burns believes that means the dog is experiencing more than the good feeling that comes with a meal. It shows the dog is recognizing somebody extremely important to them. It's the same area in a human brain that activates when we listen to a favorite song or anticipate being with someone we love. So just by smelling the sweat of their owner, it triggers something in a much stronger way than it does with a stranger. Right, which means that it's a positive feeling, a positive association. And, and that's something you can prove through MRIs. It's not just, I mean, previously people would say, well, yeah, obviously my dog loves me. I see its tail wagging and it seems really happy when it sees me. Right. Now we're using the brain as, as kind of the test to say, okay, when we see activity in, in these reward centers, that means the dog is experiencing something that it likes or it, it wants and it's a good feeling. My takeaway from this is that I'm not being scammed by my dog. Did you have that yeah, beforehand? I totally, yeah, I worry about that all the time. Watch YouTube videos of dogs welcoming home returning service members, and it's easy to see the bond between dogs and their owners. Brian Hare says there's even more proof of that bond. It's found in our bloodstreams. We know that when dogs and humans make eye contact, that that actually releases what's known as the love hormone, oxytocin, in both the dog and the human. It turns out oxytocin, the same hormone that helps new mothers bond with their babies, is released in both dogs and humans when they play, touch, or look into one another's eyes. Thank you very much. <laughs> what we know now is that when dogs are actually looking at you, they're essentially hugging you with their eyes. Really? Yes. And so it's not just that when a dog is making a lot of eye contact with you that they're just trying to get something from you. It actually probably is just really enjoyable for them because they get an oxytocin or they get an uptick in this love hormone too. All these new discoveries about dogs have led Brian Hare to create a science-based website called Dognition, where owners can learn to play games to test their dog's brain power. So you're allowing people to do an intelligence test for their dog. That's exactly right. And the idea, though, is that there's not one type of intelligence. We help you measure things like how your dog communicates, how empathic your dog is. Is your dog cunning? Is your dog actually capable of abstract thought, like reasoning? So there are different kinds of intelligence for dogs, just like with humans. Absolutely. And so just like some humans are good at English and others are good at math, it's the same for dogs. When Hare tested his own dog, a mixed breed named Tassie, he was surprised by what he learned. What I found out was that I had somebody sleeping in my bed that I didn't even know. <laughs> really? And I didn't know my dog doesn't really rely on its working memory. Hmm. So if I'm saying sit and stay, I no longer have to wonder why my dog wanders off. Mm. He, like, literally forgot. So your dog's not the, the sharpest of dogs. He did great on uh, communication. He's uh -huh. very communicative. So he could basically be a TV anchor, is what <laughs> you're saying. Yes. Fetch shirt. Fetch shirt. There we go. If you're wondering how Chaser did on Brian Hare's intelligence tests, she was off the charts on reasoning and memory. Not surprising, perhaps, considering Chaser is a border collie. 
Dogs bred specifically for their ability to understand how farmers want their sheep herded. Is Chaser just like an Einstein of dogs? So that's really fun. Is Chaser somehow special? And I think the idea actually is that no. I mean, when uh, Dr. Pilly chose Chaser, he just randomly took her out of a litter. What's special is that he spent so much time playing these games to help her learn words. But are there lots of Chasers out there? Absolutely. On your mark, get set, go. There's going to be a lot of people who see this and are jealous of your relationship with Chaser. I mean, I now think about my own dog and kind of think, wow, I've... I've missed the boat. I haven't sort of helped my dog live up to her potential. Well, uh, start working with your dog more. Yeah, you're so sweet. There's a lot going on in there. Does your dog really love you? Anderson Cooper talks about Molly on 60MinutesOvertime.com. Sponsored by Lyrica. I'm Scott Pelley. We'll be back next week with another edition of 60 Minutes.